Thank you for joining us for Colossians, Rooted in Christ. Let's prepare our hearts for what God has to say to us today, and please give a warm welcome to Dr. Derry Long. Now, a word about the shirt. <laughs> I only wear this shirt upon request, and uh, so somebody requested it. I told Doyle, our, uh, our uh, pastoral care pastor, and he asked, are you sure they didn't dare you instead of request you? And I said, well, I think they requested it, but I'm not hearing as well as I used to, so I might have got it wrong. Anyway, I am honoring a request, and believe me, it wasn't my wife's. (laughs) So, (laughs) So, glad that you're here. We're going to uh, spend some time in Colossians chapter 3. The first part of Colossians is all about Christ, the supremacy of Christ, the priority of Christ. Then Paul slips into some very practical advice. The beginning of chapter 3, we have the counsel, set your heart on things above. In other words, Paul is talking about setting a set of goals and priorities focused upon things above. And then he begins to outline for us some of the aspects that are important if we're going to set worthy and noble goals. Now, coming here just before school has started, I imagine a lot of us have goals. Some of them are written down, some you just carry. You have relational goals, financial goals, professional goals. You have goals for parenting, personal goals. Uh, And any of those goals can be addressed at least in part, to the four things that Paul outlines in these next few verses. So remember, at the beginning of this section, Paul has said, set your heart on things above. And then he begins to outline for us some of the things involved in doing that. So let's read some scripture from Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at about 13 verses. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived. But now you must rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator, Here there is no Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues... Put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You'll find in this passage four things 
that are related to our setting noble and worthy goals. And so we're going to have a look at those today. today. Number one, setting worthy goals involves exercising discipline. Now, there's two parts of exercising discipline. We see it here. Put to death, Paul says. Rid yourself, he says. Clothe yourself, he says. There's two aspects to exercising dis- discipline. One is positive. If I set a goal for myself in some area, there are things I will need to add to my life in order to achieve that goal. In all likelihood, if that thing is not part of my life today, part of it is because I do not have the components in place to make that a part of my life. So I began to add things to my life. I might add certain kinds of behavior. I was visiting with a fellow this week. I go to a breakfast on Friday mornings with about eight guys, and he was filling in for some band, and he was drumming for them. And he doesn't normally work as a drummer. And he said, you know, if I was going to be a drummer on a regular basis for two to four hours a night, I'd have to start exercising my legs because I just can't keep the beat up on that drum for two to four hours without that kind of exercise. So he was talking about adding something to his life. I might have to add attitudes or add skills or add relationships or add knowledge. Usually achieving a goal means I have to add something. It also means there are usually things I have to subtract. One of the reasons I may not be achieving my goal is there's clutter in my life, debris in my life, roadblocks in my life that prevent me work against or, do, or have a set, different set of values behind them than the goal I have declared that I want to achieve. And this is what Paul is talking about here. Paul is saying, listen, there's some things you got to put to death. There are some things you got to take off. There are some things you got to be rid of. Don't assume that if I'm going to achieve a noble goal, I can just waltz into that goal just as I am today. The pursuit of the goal will change me. I will have added things, and I will have subtracted things, and I will not be fully the person I was when I started on that journey. The greater the goal, the greater the discipline. So Malcolm Gladwell talks about the 10,000 hours threshold where many of the great performers, many of the great achievers in our world actually spent about 10,000 hours practicing or working at the thing that they achieved. For example, we'll, we'll, we'll hear about somebody, they'll show up on the stage and we'll think, man, that was overnight. That, they know it wasn't overnight. There was a day when the Beatles from the 60s and 70s, the Beatles would have four and five hits of the top 10 on the, on the charts at a given time. They were that pervasive in the culture. And it looked as if they almost showed up. But in fact, they had practiced over 10,000 hours together and had spent months and months and months in Germany playing clubs all over Germany enhancing their sound and getting their message, their sound particular to them. That is true for many endeavors in our life. Larry Bird, who was the great all-star and Hall of Famer from the Boston Celtics, even after years of being in the NBA, at the end of every practice, would shoot 100 three-pointers and 150 free throws. Now, I don't care how much you like basketball. After 10 years in the NBA, somewhere around free throw number 80, it's got to get tedious. 
And, and he did it anyway because he wanted to know that when a packed house was screaming in another city that he wasn't living in and he had that three-point shot or that free throw that his neurological self and his physical self had a memory that would make that happen. So he practiced and he practiced and he practiced. Now in some places of the world, that's not difficult, difficult to grasp, but it is in America where we have so many options. So Paul said, this one thing I do, but for many of us, it's this 20 things we dabble. Now there's nothing wrong with dabbling. I was traveling last week and I bought a Vanity Fair just to read an article about Taylor Swift. Now I, I don't know that I'm better for it, it, it happened to be the fashion issue, so I was on page 80 before I got to the table of contents. You ever see of those? Uh... So there's just some things you like. I like, we, we do them. But if you set a goal, then, then we just can't be dabbling at everything. Some people want to be good parents, and they dabble at it. Some people want to be good spouses, and they dabble at it. There's some things you don't get three and four shots at. And so, this one thing I do. And so we need to be able to exercise discipline. The Bible says count the cost. And so we need to count the cost of the things that we're going to be involved in if we want them to be productive. Here's the second thing. Not only exercise discipline, but commit ourselves to community. Paul says, clothe yourself, and then in the next verses gives a whole bunch of traits that are all about relationship. Love, humility, compassion, kindness, gentleness, patience, forgiveness. Those are all relational dynamics. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as it goes into every culture of the world, usually affirms certain aspects of that culture and confronts certain aspects of that culture. In the United States of America, the gospel confronts individualism. Sociological research shows that we are the most individualistic country on the face of the earth. Literally. And in some ways, that has worked for us. I read Michener's book on Texas, and I thought, man, only, only an individualistic country could have people go out and do what they did, sacrifice what they, what they did. But much of the spiritual enterprise is communal. And if you try to take that high degree of individualism into a community-based concept, you will constantly find yourself thwarted. You will set spiritual goals and you will not achieve them. You will have trouble understanding parts of the scripture. Not only do I need you, there are parts of me I can't even find except through you. I can't discover all of me except in community. So if I resist community, there's a part of me that will always be shut off to me. There'll be part of you that will always be shut off to you because you can't reach it except as other people serve as God's conduit to give it to you. And so we commit ourselves to community. This passage of scripture says that there's no Greek or Jew, there's no circumcised or uncircumcised, 
There's no barbarian or Scythian. There's no slave or free. It's for everybody. The ground is flat before the cross of Jesus Christ. And we all stand together before that. So the greater the goal, the greater the discipline, the greater the goal, the more people we need. Most little leaguers have one coach, but an Olympian Olympic skater has six, seven, eight, nine coaches. The better you get, the more coaches you need, not the less coaches you need. And the more you succeed, part of the route of success is that increased success will inevitably take you to a place of weakness. It'll take you to a place where you can't achieve it on your own. You and I will need other people. And it's essential that we understand that. I've been reading a book, it's a real knee slapper, called uh, Lyndon Johnson and the American Dream. If any of you want to read it after I'm done. Uh, I've had a chance to meet four presidents in my life, and one was Lyndon Johnson. I'd won an essay contest when I was a teenager, and about 300 teenagers got to go to Washington, and on the west lawn of the White House, he came out, came, came out and spoke to us. Lyndon Johnson, in a 24-month period, probably had the greatest legislative success in the history of the United States. After the death of John Kennedy, he became president, and he got over 500 pieces of legislation passed in less than two years. And he was a consummate negotiator. Doris Kern says there's probably no president who understood how to work with other people like Lyndon Johnson. He had a massive knowledge of the government and how it worked. The one thing he did not know was foreign policy. Now you'd have thought if he didn't know foreign policy, which even in that day was all, tended to be all wrapped up in the president, he would have his feelers out everywhere trying to figure out what foreign policy was about. But the fact is, this is documented. The Vietnam War was fundamentally decided by six guys in an Oval Office. Even the, the associates and undersecretaries of those men most of the time did not have any idea what they were doing. Six guys in an Oval Office determining in such minute detail the affairs of the Vietnam War that most of the country didn't know about and the Congress didn't know about, that they were deciding even what bomb runs would be taken, when they would be taken, and what the, what the location of the bombing would be. Unbelievable. The bigger the goal, the more people you need to accomplish that goal. And our tendency is the less I know about something, the less people I tell. Which is just the opposite of what we should be doing. Commitment to community. Then there's a third. Value wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 16 Say, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Richly means where it's at home, where it's welcome, 
where it's like water to a parched throat, that the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Wisdom is not only knowledge, it is knowledge that's being applied, that's being lived out, is actionable. Now, there, there are certain things that I've, I've got a sheet of paper, and there's, on that sheet, there's like 12 maxims I live my life by, and like you, I don't perform all of them perfectly, but they, these, 12, these 12 statements has, have had a profound impact on how I look at the world. So I'm just going to give you four. Here's one. Whatever is obvious to me is obvious to me. That'd keep a lot of us out of trouble. Because if, if, if this isn't true, if it's not true that whatever is obvious to me is obvious to me, then if it's obvious to me, I must conclude that you either don't want to see it, are not smart enough to see it, or don't care to see it. And all three put me in a judgmental position related to you. But maybe, just maybe, what you're looking at when you look at a reality, I'm looking at a different aspect of that reality. It's like my wife is very practical. Always has her feet on the ground. She shuffles when she walks. It just, we're talking practical. So we're driving into town. We live at Four Corners. And I'll say, man, look at that. I've never noticed that building before. And then she would get this, she gets this look on her face. And she well, it's been there about five years. Like nothing gets by me. But I'll be in settings where I'm not watching the obvious. I'm watching what is not obvious. I'm in a group setting where I'm watching the glancing of eyes, the use of body language, what I feel internally when I'm next to the spirit of another person. And I'm seeing that as visibly as my wife sees that building go up. But what is obvious to me is obvious to me. There's another one I live by. Whatever you concentrate on, you conform to. Like, I cannot concentrate on your flaws without eventually having a negative view of you that rides the rails of bitterness. God who knows everything about you and everything about me, and yet he calls me his beloved. He calls you his beloved. He says, you were created in my image. Knowing all he knows, he focuses that you were created to be his child, adopted into his family. And that's who he sees you to be. Whatever you concentrate on, you'll conform to. There's another one I live by. The more you know, the more you don't know. It sounds a little discouraging. I'll tell you where I learned this. I was living in Minneapolis, and a fellow I knew was a teacher, and a teaching assistant at the University of Minnesota. He worked in the science department, and in that department, they got government grants to make little doohickeys. Yeah, I'm, I'm on top of this. To make little doohickeys that they put in satellites, and they'd go up to Churchill Canada, and they'd shoot them way up in rockets up into the atmosphere and, uh, and check for radio waves. 
And then in his office, he had his own massive telescope. I mean, the kind like domed with the, you know, the telescope and he took me in there. And The more he talked about this, the more I thought about astronomy and here's what I thought about. I thought, let's say I went into his office knowing 10 things about the universe. And because I knew those 10 things, I knew that there were another 100 things to know that I didn't know. But I knew I didn't know them. So I know 10 things, and I don't know 100 things. But as I talked to him, I knew that if I knew 10 things about the universe, he knew 1,000 things. But if he knew 1,000 things, he didn't know 10,000 things. Because in learning the thousand things, he learned that there were 9,000 more things to know that he didn't know. Therefore, I may know more than you know in certain areas, but I also don't know more than you don't know in those areas. <laughs> and that's why if you possess wisdom, it does not puff you up. Because the more you learn, the more you know there's more to learn. People with true wisdom don't function as superior to other people because they live with the constant awareness that they don't know way more than all the people around them don't know. And there's so much to know. It's one of the reasons why when God is the center of our faith, I am puzzled at how Christians can be so certain about everything. Because I'm certain, I'm more certain than I've ever been about a fewer set of things. But I have more questions today after 45 years of being a Christian than I've ever had. Because the more I learn about God's world, the more I realize there's so many things I don't know. So the more you know, the more you don't know. Here's the last one. Every great goal will take you to a level beyond your expertise. If it's a great goal and you really start working at it, it'll take you to a place where you don't have the skill for that place. Lyndon Johnson became president and then it took him to a place in foreign policy where he lacked the skill and the skill he did have didn't work in that arena and, and so he just shut it all down and kept it all in close. Now let's apply this to golf. Like I'm a golfer. Now I say that with great apology to people who do actually, are actually golfers. Because my golfing would be turned, would be termed whack and wail. I whack it and then I wail. I say things like, I didn't know you could reach the other fairway from here. Or, how come they don't mow under these trees? <laughs> and I have one rule about golf. I won't golf with anyone who cares. I mean, <laughs> if you care, I don't mind you caring. But go golf with someone else who cares. I used to golf with a guy in eastern Montana and he'd hit the ball and by the third green he's talking to himself, he's defaming himself, his parents, his heritage, his skill. Why, should, why was I born? 
I was golfing with somebody and we were looking halfway down the fairway. We were waiting. There's a guy down there and there's a big dog leg and he hit the ball and, and on the right of the dog leg was all these deep trees and ravines and I couldn't tell where the ball went but he stood like this after he hit it and then he took one step back and he just threw his club into the ravine. Like, I, I don't golf with those kind of people. It's not because I think I'm better than them. It just, I, I, I don't want to care that much. But, but if, you, if you try to achieve a great thing, it'll take you to a place of incompetence. Chand wrote a book called Leadership Pain. And it's the willingness to lob together or hook together achievement and pain. If you don't want pain, then you got to diminish your expectations because great achievement always takes pain. Valued wisdom. And here's a fourth. Express gratitude. Twice in this passage, Paul says, be thankful. Then he says, give thanks. And then he says in 3.17, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you're pursuing a goal, maintain a thankful heart. There's nobody in the world that should be able to maintain a thankful heart like us. We have so many things to be thankful for. But it's amazing how narrow our world can get. And suddenly this one thing isn't right. And so all the rest is clouded and forgotten because I can't make this one thing work. I was going through a place in my life about 30, 40 years ago, 30 years ago, where I decided I don't have to be happy. Because there were circumstances going on in my world at that time, some of which were out of my control. And I thought, if I can't be happy unless I make this world bend to me, what if it doesn't bend? It involves other people. What if they don't bend? Do I have to be happy? Does it have to be my way? Is there actually a heaven? I thought, I could live 40 years and not be happy because I'm going to go to heaven. And as far as what I've read, if what I've read is true, I'll be happy there. Some of you will still be throwing your golf clubs. I'll be happy. Now, living, living in gratitude as you pursue a goal does a number of things for us. One is it makes us expansive. It enlarges our heart and enlarges our world. Another is that it makes us expressive. Suddenly we're in community and we're partnering with other people. And the third thing it does is it makes us explosive. Survey after survey shows that if it comes down to just this, size of income or affirmation, the vast majority of people will choose affirmation. It's that nourishing to our soul. And you can give that kind of affirmation. See, it's, it's not hard for some of us in this room to think we need other people. 
But for some of us in this room, it's difficult to imagine that other people need us. That other people need us. So, so James says, when all kinds of trials and tribulations crowd into your life, do not resent them as intruders, intruders, but welcome them as friends, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. And let patience have its perfect work so that you may be complete, lacking nothing. So if the Lord is telling us that even in trial and temptation we're to be grateful, then really virtually in all things, God wants to eventually, not perhaps at the moment, but eventually raise a spirit of gratitude. And one of the reasons is this, which is another maxim I live by. Everything I learn is for somebody else. Everything I learn, if it's redemptive and wholesome and righteous and good, everything I learn is for somebody else. Well, that's enough for today. Let's put our things aside and would you bow your heads with me as we finish up? And uh, heads bowed and eyes closed and just a question for you as we finish up. Perhaps you came in this morning and you have a goal. Maybe it's written down and maybe it's just in your heart. It may be a relational goal or a financial goal. It may be personal or professional. And wouldn't it be better if that goal is righteous and wholesome? Wouldn't it be better if Christ was a partner with you in that goal? That your partnership with Christ would enable you to infuse that goal with discipline and community, wisdom and gratitude. Right where you're sitting, you can just ask the Lord for that. He says, if you ask with a sincere heart, he'll not turn you away. You can hold that goal up to him and say, Lord, this really matters to me. And I believe it's a wholesome goal. Will you partner with me in that goal? We're going to wait for a minute just for you to interact that with the Lord if you want to do that. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the, the yearnings of our heart. The goals you place there the noble endeavors that are part of our being created in your image. Thank you for the invitation to invite you into those goals. Show us how to actualize each one of these aspects of goal achievement. We want to set our heart on lofty things and do it all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.